You guys can be seated. Welcome, I'm Dennis. I'm one of the many pastors here at Golden Hills Community Church. I'm part of the herd. Good to see you guys. It's my joy today to be able to preach the word. And I apologize for being long-winded. If you were waiting outside earlier, that was all my fault. I apologize. Before we dive in, I've got a couple of quick announcements, so I have to get my goggles on. We have, coming up, uh, Operation Christmas Child Shoebox Drop-Off is going to be happening. Um, last day to drop off is going to be the 21st at 2 p.m. So you can bring them in. You can set them outside. Uh, you can take them over to the children's ministry area. You can drop them off starting today in the lobby. Um, you can also pick up a box if you'd like to grab one to fill it. You can grab that outside on your way out. Also, winter camp registrations are now open. I have three 15-year-olds that are super excited about this. Winter camp for middle school, high school is going to be February 11th through the 13th, and that's going to be in 2022. The theme this year is filtered, where we will see how God is redeeming our emotions. You can register online at goldenhills.org. And last but not least, we have the Women's Ministry Christmas Gathering, formerly known as Ladies Christmas Extravaganza. That's going to be December 4th, 3 p.m. Tickets are on sale online or at the table out front today. This year's theme is The Visible World Beholding God's Glory. Featured speaker is author Irene Sun who has taught at various conferences, including the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference. Also, if you guys like paper, we have paper. We give you paper. Or you can uh, scan the QR code that was up on the screen earlier, and hopefully you can go through and you can find the notes and write some notes in there, and it has more information about the stuff going on here at the church. So when I was 40 years old, I did something rather strange. It wasn't a normal midlife crisis. I didn't go out and buy a sports car or anything. Not that I wouldn't. I loves cars. But I decided to do a triathlon. And I know when you're looking at me, what you're thinking is, that's a triathlete. <laughs> and unfortunately, when I was looking in the mirror at 40, I'm like, yeah, I'm a triathlete. And so I started training and I started doing the things that I needed to do so that I, I could accomplish my goal. My goal was that I would um, go through and I would do an, uh, an Olympic distance triathlon. triathlon. Um, and I quickly realized as I began to train that there's only one part out of the three events that you can actually drown. You would think that I would have understood that before, and yet some reason I didn't. I had ridden my bike my entire life. I'd grown up out here when I was 14 years old. My dad bought me a bicycle, and I rode all over the place. I used to ride my bike to work here, and so uh, that was good. I was a college athlete. I, I did uh, soccer in high school and college, and so I've run hundreds and hundreds of miles all over this part of the county. And I was a strong swimmer, but you don't realize what it takes to swim in open water. It's a totally different thing. And the very first triathlon that I decided to do was a sprint distance triathlon. So you're only swimming half a mile. And you're out in the middle of this quarry, a flooded quarry. 
and you're swimming along. And the problem was that at the beginning of the race, they even tell you, they try and warn you, and they say, like, there's three different groups of people that are going to swim. In this first group, we have real swimmers. <laughs> people that have played sports in college that had, were, you know, water polo players. Then we have good swimmers. And then we have people that like need floaties and water wings and <laughs> that's probably where I should have been but somewhere inside and men you can maybe back me up and ladies I don't know what it, the workings of in, internal womanhood are but as, as a man there's you know when you see like that, that group and all those athletes and you're like oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I can do that. That's me. I don't look like any of those guys, but I can do that. And so I got up in the front and I took off, man. I, I'm swimming and there's people hitting my feet and I'm hitting their feet. And all of a sudden you get about halfway out into this quarry and you realize you can't breathe. You're completely out of breath. And I don't know if you know this, but you can't breathe in water. I found that out. And so here I am with my little swim goggles on and I'm looking down at the bottom and I can see all the little like plants waving at me and it's about 75 feet deep. And it doesn't matter how hard you stretch your little toes at that point, you're not going to touch the bottom. Not while you're alive. And there's a panic that sets in. There's a fear that begins to grip your heart, and if you're not careful, the fear can overwhelm you. Fear is an excellent motivator. It's a terrible decision maker. And as I was swimming along and I decided, okay, I need to slow down. I need to catch my breath. Fortunately, there were people all around me. There were lifeguards out there on surfboards, people that worked for the event and they were people in kayaks, everything. There were people all, all around so that when someone gets in trouble, they could bring you in. When you, when you have done the thing that you ought not do in the attempt to get to where you think you need to go, they're out there to protect you from yourself. And they can bring you back in. And so from that, I learned a couple of things. One is that we need people around us. One, that can help us when, when we're out doing things. That we, we, we really, we've set a goal. We want to get there. We want to do this. We need people around us to not only help us be disciplined, but we need people around us to help protect us from ourselves. That sometimes our desires are wrong. Sometimes our assessments of ourselves are wrong. And, and the second thing that I learned is that as you're training in this stuff, sometimes you just need to dive in. That, that this time of year, November, if you ever see anyone over at the health club going like this and like dipping their toes in the water and you know how they go down to their calves and they're like, ooh, that's not a triathlete. 
And I know that because it doesn't matter what temperature the water is. It doesn't matter whether you want to swim. It doesn't matter what time it is. You have to go dive in because if you don't, if you don't discipline yourself, if you don't train, you will drown. Because that is the part of the race that is dangerous. And I finally did accomplish my goal and I I did an Olympic distance triathlon over in Sacramento and you swim a mile in open water in the Sacramento River and it's 63 degrees and I wasn't wearing a wetsuit and you're out there and there are people that are actually following you. They put a tag on you. They safety pin a tag to your Speedos so that when they find your body, they can identify you. And so you have to have that discipline. You have to do what's right, what's good, what will get you to the end point, whether you want to or not, whether it feels good in the moment or not. And so the section of scripture that we're going to be going over today is in Ephesians chapter 4, it's verses 11 through 16, and it's all about church discipline, and it's set within the context of how to grow a healthy church. And so as we've been going through our series on the church, this is how do you grow a healthy church? And discipline has to be a part of this. It has to be a piece of who we are as the family of God. And I just have to say, if this is your first time here at church and you're walking into a message on church discipline, I'm sorry. (laughs) Because I also understand that some of you may have come here from an overbearing painful situation where authoritative people were looking to be punitive and maybe cause pain in your life and whether that was that maybe that was from an organized church or maybe it was from a family or maybe maybe just people that you were in relationship with And so I understand as you're walking in, if you're hearing this about discipline, it may make you feel as though you want to recoil. And so what I would ask you to do is just for today, press in. Just press in. Because my hope is by the end of this sermon that what you will hear more than punitive, authoritative, you would hear love of Christ. Loving shepherd who wants to be out there on a surfboard so that when you get caught in the waves, when you're battered to and fro by the waves of deceitful scheming, that you're the one that's brought back in, out of the surf, on solid ground, surrounded by people who love you who will then encourage you and build you up and pour back into you and help you reignite the fire of the love of Christ. With that said, let's dive in. And so what we'll do is we'll read through this section. As we read through the section, then we'll pray. And after we pray, then we'll kind of break it down. So Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come here, that we can study your word, Lord, that you can speak. And Lord, I pray that in this time, Lord, that I would get out of the way. Lord, that you would speak to your church. Lord, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see minds and hearts that would receive all that you have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this this section kind of breaks down into three pieces. The very first one is the shortest, and yet, unfortunately, it's the longest. I agree. (laughs) But it's where he says, and he gave... Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers that God God gives the offices of the church for the benefit of the church. Part number two, how do you grow this healthy church? What is the church supposed to look like? The church, according to scripture, is supposed to be this mechanism by which the body of Christ is built up. What does that mean? What does it mean that the church is supposed to function in a way that produces disciples who look more and more like Christ, who grow up into the head, who achieve fullness of stature in the maturity of Christ. What is the church supposed to look like? And the third part is what does it mean to train up healthy children of God? And what I don't mean by this is that if you've brought your kids here and you're like, hey, listen to this, you need to pay attention. It's all of us. If you're here, if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, according to Scripture, you've been given the right to be called a child of God. And as a child of God, you need to be trained up. My son, as he got out of the car the other day, went to close the door of my car with his hydro flask. Again, I told you that I'm a car guy. And as he was closing my metal door with his metal hydro flask, and I know I shouldn't be this way, I'm a Christian, I should be like, oh, it's just stuff. You're more important, baby. (laughs) And yet as a dad that doesn't have unlimited resources, I'm like, what are you doing? Does it seem like a good idea to close a metal door with a metal hydro flask? And he's like, no. And then I'm like, okay, please, 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 please be kind to your dad who does not have unlimited resources and please use a piece of flesh to close the door next time. And he's like, okay. And I was thankful, I was grateful. I apologized later on for raising my voice and becoming irrational. 
But that's, that's what it takes to raise up humans, doesn't it? And, and whether it's in the church or whether it's in a family, that, that it, takes, it takes discipline. It takes people who are willing to walk with you and, and not only walk with you, but love you and speak the truth. In fact, this section, the very first section where it talks about and he gave, I have a problem here because as as I talked earlier about just diving in, when you hit something like this exegetically and you're trying to pull apart and understand the scripture, we could just assume what he means in verse 11. And he, we could assume that it's Paul, we could assume that it's Cephas, we could assume that it's Apollos, we could assume that it's Jesus. And yet what we want to do is figure out the context of what it's saying, and so we start to work backwards because the word and lets us know that there's something that has preceded it. And so we start working backwards, and we start looking at he. And so I, I, I've got he here, I've got he here, I've got he, okay. And so it goes back to verse eight, and that's, that's that section where it talks about who the he is and he. The problem is, at verse eight, it starts with a therefore, I don't know if you guys know this, but when you're, when you're doing Bible study and you hit a therefore, usually what you do is you ask what the therefore is there for. <laughs> and so you can see how these rabbit holes happen in my life, and I wind up sitting in my office studying scripture for like seven hours, and my wife's like, are you going to come home? Like, yeah, I, I promise I will. Because as I go back, you have to ask what the therefore is there for, and so I start working my way backwards again. And so then we hit chapter 4, because that's the section where it talks about unity in the body of Christ, the problem is when I hit chapter 4, what do we hit at verse 1? Another therefore. <laughs> and I promise we're not going to do this. We're not going to play this game and like work all the way back to Genesis or anything like that. But so, so you have to then work back from that. And in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, we hit the doxology that's right at the end of chapter 3. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ever ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we can start. We have a place where we can dive in. And yet in order to do that, I have to give you a little groundwork because a doxology is a liturgical form of praise that was taught to the church because of the nature of what's being taught, that it's something that is so important, so vital that the church has to know it. They have to memorize it. It has to be ingrained into the core of who they are. And so they, they would write these down and they would teach people so that they could understand why is it so important to understand that God is capable, that God is able, that God can do things so far above what you could ever ask or imagine that you can trust in him and that you can do so in a way that brings praise and glory and honor to his name now and forever? And so in, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul starts off by talking to the, the, the church in Ephesus and he says, I am a prisoner of Christ for you. 
that I'm here, I, I'm a prisoner, I'm writing to you, I belong to the Lord, and he saved me so that I can preach the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ in the redemption through his blood on the cross. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was saved, when he was knocked off on the road of Damascus, when he was blinded, the Lord said, I want you to go to this house and I want you to go see a guy named Ananias. And so as he went to this house, the Lord then spoke to Ananias and he told Ananias, I want you to go to this house on, State, on Straight Street and I want you to speak to this man, Saul. And I love Ananias' response to this. Lord, I have heard many things about this man, Saul. How he has persecuted your church and killed people. I don't know if you can understand that kind of response to what God is calling you to do. But there are times when the Lord calls us to go and do things that are so far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine or think of. And the Lord says, I want you to go talk to this murderer. And he's a specific kind of murderer. He's a murderer who wants to murder you. And yet the Lord lays out for Ananias that he's going to take Paul, he's going to transform him, and he's going to become the apostle that presents the gospel to the Gentiles. And so as Paul makes this case, he explains to the Gentiles in Ephesus, I am a prisoner of Christ for you so that you could hear the redemption that is in Jesus Christ alone. That he came as God in the flesh, that he died in your place on the cross after living a sinless life, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures, that he proved to everyone the, the testimony of the Father through him, that he is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Not that there are other ways, not that there are a multiplicity of ways. He said, I am am the way. And Paul says, I'm here to preach that to you. That's the reason I was saved. That's the reason God called me and appointed me as an apostle, as a sent one. But then he goes on to explain what it looks like that the Gentiles are now included into this magnificent plan of God. He says that there was a mystery that was hidden throughout the generations and, and I'm here now to include you into this mystery that this mystery is that the Gentiles are now included into the church so that the church will be able to show the manifest wisdom of God. That throughout the generations, as the prophets would speak, they would tell of God's righteousness, of God's goodness, of God's mercy, of God's perfection, uh, of God's love, and that all of these things would come into one vessel, one instrument that would be the radiant picture of God's wisdom manifest so that the rulers and authorities in the universe, in the heavens, might be able to see. According to this, 
there are authorities, rulers in the heavens apart from God. It is, God is the ultimate authority and yet there are created beings that have power. They're called angels. And whether, whether they're angels that are still in heaven or angels that are fallen, that they constantly wonder about this love that God has for humans, those who were created in the image of God, those who are image bearers, those who were created for a purpose, those who rebelled against God. And he says, the purpose of the church is that the manifold wisdom of God might be shown so that the rulers and authorities in the heavens can see the power and majesty and glory and grace and goodness of God. And yet even within this, Paul understands that we don't have a box for this. And so he starts to describe how this is supposed to happen. And so he describes that the church, now that it's in Christ, has to be filled, rooted, and established in love. In fact, that's how he prays for the church in Ephesus in verse 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, he describes a love that, again, we don't have a box for. That, 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 that the love of God that he wants us to be rooted and grounded in has dimensional quality. It's not sentiment. It's not something that you can write on a Hallmark card. It, it, has, it has life to it. This kind of love comes with splinters and soup. And what I mean by that is when we had our triplets, some guy, some of you may remember this, when I first got hired back on staff here at Golden Hills, we were the, the people that had multiple babies all at the same time. And so we were the ones pushing around the little Disneyland trim that had like the little stadium seating plastic seats, and it was like covered by a tarp, it looked like something from, from Harbor Freight. And yet as we're pushing everybody around, you may have also been able to recognize us as the ones who had massive dark circles under our eyes. Because the thing that apparently comes with triplets is no sleep. And yet at the same time, we had people that came over that loved my family, people that ironed my shirts, people that scrubbed our floors, People that brought soup, bowls of soup, pizza. In the midst of that, of course, this is the perfect time to start a remodel. <laughs> because we've just gone from three people in a 1,280 square foot house to six people. And fortunately, the, 
last three were very small so they could all fit in one room. And yet I had people coming over and helping me build things and bring roto hammers to drill into the foundation to set ledger boards and do all kinds of stuff. This kind of love, it comes with slivers and soup. It's, it's higher than, than I could ever imagine. It's, it's wider than, than I feel comfortable with. It's deeper than I can go. And it has a longevity that I can't do on my own. And so as Paul is starting to describe this, he's saying, this is what I want you to be rooted and grounded in. I want you to be rooted and grounded in this so that you can grow up into the fullness that God has for you. And so now that he's totally described something that we have no boxes for, then he dives into the doxology and he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. This this thing that God is doing is going to stretch out for eternity to give Christ all the glory. And that's where we hit chapter four, verse one. Because Paul then changes. He says in the first part that I'm a prisoner for Christ for you. But now he says, I'm a prisoner to Christ. Because of all of this, because of everything that he's doing, because of what the church is, because of the grace he has afforded us, because of the love he wants us rooted in, I am now a prisoner of Christ. And I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to be set free. I belong to him. I am chained to him. It reminds me of when Jesus gave his amazing altar call that unless you are willing to leave your mother and your father and your children and your friends and your, your, your wealth and your property, unless you're willing to leave all of these things and pick up your cross and follow me, you can't come with me. And it says, at that day, a great number left. And yet he looked at his apostles and his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And they said, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Paul says, I don't want to go anywhere else. Lord, please don't set me free. I belong to you because he follows on and he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And I've heard Pastor Larry from this pulpit preach this any number of times that the phrase used here means to bring up the measure or the balance of the bar and it brings to mind the image of an old-fashioned scale where weights would be set on one side, a commodity would be set on the other and we would see how much the commodity weighed. And so in this case, the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean, it shows off all the deeds of the flesh for everyone to see. 
And so the Lord says, what I want you to do is I want you to begin to crucify the flesh. I want you to begin to cut these things out of your life. And I want you to begin to live with the power of the Holy Spirit in you so that you can minister within the body. I want you to bring up the balance of the beam. Not that you're putting good works on this side of the scale so that you can somehow earn salvation because salvation is a free gift. It's by grace through faith in Christ. There's nothing that you can do to earn this. And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside you, he's given you everything you need so that you can live a life of godliness. And so begin to do the good works that he has prepared for you in advance so that you can bring glory to God. Bring up the balance of the beam. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And yet even the things that we put on this side of the scale are from God. The things that we do where he manifests his goodness in us as this manifold wisdom of God flows through us, all of those things are his. And so according to scripture, at the end of time, when we come, see, come to see Jesus face to face, we're going to take off our crowns and we're going to lay them at his feet because they're not ours. They're things that he paid for and that he has now manifest in us to bring glory to his name. And then it goes on and it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This one another irks me. Because so often I sit in my little office or I drive in my little car, you know, the one that's got a scratch on it now from a, it doesn't really. But I listen to scripture, I listen to worship songs, and I'm just like, oh yeah, me and you, Jesus, we're great. And then I come in contact with someone else in the church who maybe isn't as easy to deal with. And it's none of you. <laughs> and the Lord says, be humble. You're not all that in a bag of chips. You're just not. The reason you needed a savior is because you were a sinner that was going to be destroyed, separated from God in your sin. And so the good news of the gospel precludes the idea that you would be all that in a bag of chips. And then he says, love one another. Be, bear with one another. Have you ever noticed those one another's come just at the wrong time? When you're dealing with someone that is just a little harder to deal with, and in that instant, the Lord lovingly says, hey, I want you to show my manifold wisdom through the power of biblical love. In truth and in love, I want you to love this person. 
And then he goes on from there. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That, that Paul wants us to understand that Jesus, who left the perfection of heaven, who left the perfect intimacy and communication of the triune God, and he came here as a human, as a baby. He was born, he lived a sinless life, and as he walked on the face of the earth, as he showed his dominion, over everything that was created, everywhere his little sandaled foot fell, everywhere that there was a little tiny puff of dust that came out from underneath his sandal, he was showing, this belongs to me. And as he descended into the grave, he said, death and life belong to me. And as he rose from the dead and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God, God has made him the ruler over all things and he's seated at the right hand of God who intercedes on your behalf and who someday will have all of his enemies put under his feet as a footstool because everything belongs to him. That's his authority, that's his glory. Verse 11, and he, and he, he's the one. He's the one that gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And, and Paul starts off with, you, you, know who, you know who the apostles are. You, you, you've seen us. He's talking to the early church and he says, you, you know who the apostles are. In fact, there's something unique about the church in Ephesus where they were intimately acquainted with two apostles. One is the apostle John. He lived there. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in a church with the apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved? Can you imagine trying to preach in front of the apostle John? Timothy was the pastor, this young guy, and Paul has to remind him, no, no, stay there. I, I know the Ephesians are difficult to deal with. There's a lot of pressure. But they also had the apostle Paul, who was so loved by the church in Ephesus that when he was on his way to Rome, he stopped off and he talked to the, he talked to the Ephesian elders and they, they hugged him and they wept and they asked him to stay with them. Don't go off to Rome. Don't, you're going to get killed. Don't go there. Stay here with us. And he says, I, I can't. I, I belong to the Lord. I, I have to go. I belong to the Lord for a reason. 
See, discipline is an important part of who we are, and yet the apostles, the prophets, are the ones who continuously teach from the word. And so they were familiar with the prophets because they, at the time, the scriptures that they had that they studied were the Old Testament scriptures, and so they, would, they were familiar with the prophets. And yet within the church in that iteration at that time, Paul also said that there were people speaking forth the prophetic word of God so that they could understand who God is. And Paul says, I've spoken in tongues more than all of you, and yet I would rather speak five intelligible words of prophecy that benefited the body, that built the body up so that it could do what God designed it to do rather than a thousand words of tongues. And yet he also includes in this group evangelists. People who go and and talk about the gospel, tell everyone who Jesus is. Or shepherds. People who come alongside the flock and train and love and care for, and teachers, people who can break down the word of God so that everyone can can consume it, that these are a gift from God to the church so that the church can grow, which takes us into the next section. How do you grow a healthy church? Verses 12 through 13. That these people, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are here to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That these people within the church are supposed to be actively training and teaching and preaching and walking alongside and correcting so that the church can do what it was supposed to do, so so that the saints can be equipped to do the work that God has gifted you to do. And so as you're doing this, there is also a time frame and a measurement. The time frame is until we reach unity in the faith, when the Lord comes back, when all of our discrepancies and ideas, all our differences are laid aside, and we are now in the presence of the visible authority King Jesus, and that we have grown up into the fullness of Christ, that, that God wants to transform you. He wants to train you. He wants to change you. And the measurement of that isn't whether or not you can be the best you that you can be. Wouldn't that be an awful thing? It's not that you would be compared to me or I would be compared to you. It's that we're grown up into the fullness of Christ. That he's transforming you so that you can become like him. And this side of heaven, you're not going to be perfect. I'm sorry. And yet there will be a day where all of the flesh will be removed 
and you'll be made new. Right now, you're a new creation, and it's the not yet, but will happen. It's a promise. It's guaranteed. And so, what does the church look like in order to produce that? What does the church, what does a healthy church look like in growth? And so when I, was, when I was first hired back on staff here, I had been an intern at Golden Hills back in the uh, mid to late 90s, and they hired me back as the pastor to singles in 2005. And so what's weird right now is that that was 16 years ago. And yet, for some reason, they haven't fired me yet, even though I speak way too long. Um, and as I was brought onto staff, I was brought into this team because Pastor Larry asked us to go through the scriptures and he wanted us to study the scriptures and come up with a definition of what a disciple was. And so I was put on this team with all of these men that had been Christians longer than I had been alive. And as I'm in this group, I'm like, oh man, Lord, why, why'd you put me here? I mean, I... Lord, I don't deserve to be here. And yet he wanted to grow me and he wanted to put me into an environment where iron would sharpen iron so that the church would do what it's supposed to do so that these older brothers in the Lord would disciple me and grow me and help me grow into maturity. And so as we studied all of these things, Rick Moe gave us a picture that has always stuck he said, what we need to do is be like Toyota. Rick Moe was the child raised in Japan by missionary parents. And so I don't know if he loves all things Japanese, but he loves many things Japanese. One of the things that he loves is Japanese is Toyotas. And he will only buy Toyotas. Again, I don't even know if that's true. Rick, if you're here, I'm sorry. But what he did was he explained how Toyota goes about manufacturing a car. And so what they do is they design the entire car, soup to nuts, top to bottom, front to back. They, they design every piece of sheet metal. They design every wire. They design every chip. They design everything within the car so that once it's complete and built, they can see whether or not it's what they want to build whether or not it has longevity, whether or not it has the ability to just function. And if it meets all of their parameters, then they work backwards and they create the assembly line. And so he said, what we need to do is figure out what this disciple looks like so that we can work backwards and create the ministries of the church so that we can produce these disciples. And what he landed on with us was the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. That it's the prototype of what a disciple looks like. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices or as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not conform or be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That, that he describes this living sacrifice, and this living sacrifice is someone who would have been understood by the early church because whether they were Roman, whether they were Greek, whether they were Jewish, they would have understood the idea of a sacrifice to a God. And yet sacrifices are usually dead and yet Jesus makes people alive. And so he says, I want you to be a living sacrifice and so every sacrifice has to have its life poured out. And so at, at, at the Passover, when they would bring the Passover lamb, they would bleed the lamb out. The, the lamb's life would be poured out. According to Deuteronomy, the life of the animal resides in the blood. And so all of the blood of that animal, all the life would be poured out. And then that, that animal would be consumed not only by fire, but by the church. That, that Passover lamb would be consumed by the church. Those who were believers who were under the blood of the lamb so that death would pass over, they would be filled with the lamb. They were commanded to eat all of the lamb so that they would be filled with the lamb. So all of their old life was poured out and they were filled with the lamb so that they could be consumed by the fire of God. And so as Paul's describing this, he says, this is what a prototype disciple looks like. And then he goes on and he says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That all of those old things, all of those old ways, all of those ways that you thought about yourself or perceived other people or thought the world worked, get rid of it. And renew your mind day by day, step by step, moment by moment, so that you can be a new creation, taking off the old and putting on the new. As you bring the balance of the beam up, you are transformed. Because the goal is that you would be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That this disciple is able to have relationship with God and be able to discern from God's word what he's telling you to do. And if there is a prototype here in chapter 12 of Romans, there is an anti-type in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, there was a man who was caught in sin who was sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul has to address this. He has to address this church and he has to correct their behavior. He has to bring discipline to them because the disciple that they're producing is repugnant. And as he starts to write to the church in Corinth, he starts off with how much he loves them. How thankful he is for the, the grace that God has given them. That, that he's poured out the gift of grace and the gift of his spirit so that they, they have gifts in abundance. 
He says, I, I thank God for you regularly because the Lord has given you salvation. And then he says, but what are you doing? There's dissension and factions and rivalry and malice within your midst that's, it's heartbreaking. You're supposed to be the picture of the manifold wisdom and glory of God and you're a conduit of sin. In fact, in chapter five, he goes, there's, there's a kind of sin that's within the body that you guys are reveling in, that you guys are boasting about. You're saying, oh, look how much we love this guy. He's sleeping with his stepmom and we haven't kicked him out. He goes, even the pagans wouldn't accept that. What are you doing? And yet, what is the church supposed to look like? Paul finally writes to the church in Corinth in, verse, in chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. He says, but the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe that in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He says the only good thing about you guys being a church is that you're so awful that the true believers stand out like candles in the night. And I'm not commending you because of this. And so what is, what is a right church supposed to grow into? What is a right church supposed to function as? If we know that there's a prototype and an anti-type and that there's a wrong assembly line, what does the right assembly line look like? It's the rest of that section in Romans. And Paul starts off in verse three in chapter 12, for the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Verse five. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That we're not only a part of the body of Christ, but we're a part of each other. One of the interesting things about that section in 1 Corinthians is that I've seen that in a physical form. In 1996, my dad started getting sick. My dad was big and strong and, and vivacious and vibrant. He was a farmer, he was a construction worker, and all of a sudden he started to get sick. 
My dad was strong. He had fingers like sausages. And all of a sudden, he transformed into a man that asked me to pick him up from the hospital bed in our front room and carry him to a chair so that he could sit because he was tired of laying down. You see, by the time the doctors got inside, they were going to go remove a tumor that they had identified, and yet when he woke up, rather than one little scar, he had a scar that went all the way down. And they just sewed him back up. Because those few cells at the beginning that could have been removed, that could have been excised, that could have brought healing to the body, multiplied. And as they multiplied and they grew others and they attracted others and they spread throughout the body, the body began to grow sick and die because it was stealing nutrients. It was stealing the things that the body needed to be alive. And it reached a point where it was unfixable. And yet in Romans, the Lord says, don't get to there. Love one another. Be patient with one another. Be kind with one another. Remember all those one another's? That the church is supposed to function this way for a reason, because we have a purpose, because we have a designer, because we have someone who paid for us. And so if this is what the church looks like, and these are the officers that are to train the church, what does it mean to grow up a child of God? And I have a whole bunch of verses. And I'm going to read through them as quickly as I can. What does it mean to train up a child of God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I, put a, I gave up childish ways. That there's a reasonable expectation within the church that we will mature. And yet it's something that takes time. And yet once we mature, we need to put childish things behind us. 1 Corinthians 9.24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That Paul says discipline has to be a part of what we do and we have to have an end goal in mind and that we have to discipline ourselves so that we can get to where we want to go. And yet it's still by the Spirit, the Spirit's still working inside us, but it's our aim that we would bring discipline into our lives. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meeting as is the habit of some, 
but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The, 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 the goal is that we would meet together, and did you know that your job is to irritate me? That, that word there for stir in the NIV, it's spur, is the Greek word that means to irritate. And so built into the body of Christ is that we're supposed to irritate each other. Not in a bad way, but towards love and good deeds. In Hebrews 12, verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained in it. Verse 6, 1 of Galatians, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too may be tempted. I was reading through Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and she gives this description of the church discipline in her husband's church. Church discipline has one main purpose, to reconcile the sinning brother or sister to God and to the people sinned against through repentance and a change of heart and conduct. This one main purpose also has five additional outcomes. One, to wake up the member of the church to the serious danger he or she is in. Two, to issue a serious warning to others in the body about the danger of this particular sin. Three, to maintain the purity of Christ's church and the unity and peace within the body. Four, to uphold the truth of the gospel. And to five, avoid God's wrath coming upon the church. Discipline in the household of faith shows that whom God loves, he chastens. There's no greater folly than toying with the things of God. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 13, and now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. If you came here to church today thinking, oh yeah, the church, the church doesn't judge. The Lord says don't judge the outside world. He'll do that. But judge brothers and sisters, look at them because it's not a matter of trying to lord authority over them or hurt them. It's a matter of trying to save their lives. It's a matter of trying to save the church. That this is the love of Christ. And yet it's to be done in love, in a radical love, in a love that has splinters and soup. It's not to be done as a hammer. 
It's to be done as the church. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Paul, the man that loved these brothers and sisters, says, I have to trust that the Lord will allow Satan to chase these people back. God doesn't need my help. He doesn't need me to try and hurt people so that they'll see the goodness of God. He wants me to love radically and allow the enemy to do what he does. That he's a roaring lion waiting to kill and destroy so that people might see and hunger and thirst for the salvation that's in God. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17, therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that the lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That in that moment, that thing that Esau wanted, that bowl of soup looked so good that he was willing to give away his birthright. And God says that in that moment when you're looking at that sin, when it looks so good, when it looks so tasty, when it looks so desirable, what it brings is death. He goes, don't trade the life that's in Christ for a bowl of garbage. Because someday, it might be too late. Second Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This brother in 1 Corinthians that had to be removed came to repentance and was so radically transformed that Paul writes back to the church and he says, welcome this brother back in. He's, he's turned around, he's left his sin, he wants to come back to the Lord. Don't 
isolate him. Don't hurt him further. The Lord is the one that has changed him. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused pain not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we know, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The enemy wants to try and rob and kill and destroy. This whole process for the individual is to restore, to bring back into fellowship. In fact, that last piece in Romans, in chapter 12, the description is that if you love someone radically in this way, you're heaping burning coals on their head. And I've heard people say, yeah, kill him with kindness. No, no, no. There's no killing. But it's a picture of in, in the old world when someone would go on a long trip, when they would leave home for a long time and the fire at home would die out. And as they came back to home, that they would have to reignite this fire so that they could boil water, so that they could cook food, so that they could be warm, so that they could take care of their family. And they would go around to their friends and neighbors and the friends and neighbors would give them live coals from their fires so that they could reignite a fire, so that they could take care of their family, so that they could eat and drink. Paul says, just like with the prodigal son, when you're far off, when you've been the one who has run away from the father's home, when you've chased after that sin and you've come to your senses and you've longed for that which the servants in your father's home have, and you turn and you run back to your father, he encourages the church to welcome you back in because he knows that the enemy wants to try and destroy you. He says, bring them back in. Heap burning coals on their head so that they can be reignited into the fire of God. So as these living sacrifices, they can be consumed by the fire of God and live. That's growing a healthy church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that your word is perfect, that your grace is abundant. Lord, that your mercies are new every day. And Lord, that somehow through this, your manifold wisdom and glory can shine through the church. Lord, would you please 
change us. Lord, not only as individuals, but as the body of Christ, that we would grow up into the fullness who is the head of Christ. And Lord, that through this, you would receive all of the glory forever and ever. Amen.